Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What is up, Steven? How are you, buddy? What's going on, man? Long time no talk. I know, dude. It's weird being back to one in a week. Yeah, is your your feet kind of settling, your mind not quite doing that whole thing like when you get off the boat you step on the dock and you feel like you're still on the water uh that's every day of my life (laughs) (laughs) no no, i got my sea legs (laughs) Uh, crazy yeah man you've been going at it hard it's i've been trying dude it's that time of year for us and we're just kind of just kind of grinding it out um you know, little little things change here. Little things change. You know, uh, kind of left one job to start another one. Uh, the grass wasn't as green as I thought it was going to be, and kind of hmm. worked my way. Um, actually, it was it was more of a godsend, man, that I did it, and I and you know I traded one job for another. I mean, I miss my old job. I love it to death. Um, and then I started with another fleet, and you know, I thought that the grass was going to be greener and kind of work towards it, but it was also a very good and positive thing. Um, I, I get to work with a close friend, uh, every single day and he's a big bass killer and our, our minds kind of collide together and we, we work well and we mend well. And, um, actually the, the funny thing is that we actually hunt together. So it's, it's, and he's been busting my ass, you know, <laughs> say it like, ain't so. <laughs> no, he's like, so when are we getting the cameras out? And I'm like when you give me a day off. (laughs) (laughs) So I started working with Seth uh, from Seth Sport Fishing. So I'm excited, man. And and it's really been um, a sigh of relief. Um, So you mean I need to call Seth and tell him to press you to get the cameras out because we want to see some of the shit that's going on. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So he's he's been the one that's kind of pushed me um, to get into this whole public land hunting thing and more dive deeper into it. Um, he's got his mindset on it and we've worked together and this year here in Connecticut, we've actually had the plan. Uh, we did a lot of pre-scouting as a lot of you guys know, um, together. Um, but we're planning on hunting together also. So we actually have a couple of bucks that we found, um, here that we're actually going to film together. We're both saddle hunters, so we be able to hunt together and stuff. Um, and as far as anyone's concerned, they're all on public or uh, private, right? No, <laughs> all public. No, no, they're they're private. Oh yeah. As far as anyone's yeah. concerned, they're private. <laughs> no, no, they're my private public. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you own the land. Leave them alone. <laughs> it's it's funny actually. If some of you guys might actually remember this, is that there was a buck we called the Aubrey Buck. I don't know if you if you recall, Stephen. I, I um, don't remember him. Okay, so it's called the Aubrey Buck, and the reason why it's the Aubrey Buck is his daughter's name is Aubrey, 
and we actually brought her with us to scout this property. Um, and when we went there to go scout it, he found a shed from this buck and we named it the Albee buck. Um, we found its bed um, and we found, we kind of really, we dove right in there and found some serious sign where this buck's moving, where he's going, where he's coming from. Um, one of the negative things is um, it's right next to a cornfield. So with that, um, early season, he might be tough as long as he's not, it will be easy as long as he's not bedded in the corn. Right. Um, yeah. To be able to kill his. That was my curse last year. It was because of the corn, right? Yeah. They were sticking in the corn. Yeah. The the children of the corn, we call them all the time. (laughs) Fucking hate them. Drive me nuts. But no, so, so hopefully we can get them up. Uh, we're waiting for, uh, to get in some more spy high, um, clamps so that we can get more more cameras up in the trees oh yeah pumped about that but anyways what have you been up to steve not a whole lot here man just getting back into work haven't been getting to spend near as much time on the water as i'd prefer but this weekend we're actually going to go out it's about that time of year that the mad toms are really active so what's mad tom so it's a baby catfish you know two three four inch catfish and they like to live right in the middle of the river bottom under the flat rocks, flat stone. And what we'll do is we'll go out and as we're floating down the river, because right now it's been hotter than a dog's ass, the river is real low, really clear. I mean, crystal clear and about 80 degrees. So we'll go out and actually dive in. I'll, I'm going to do some film on it because it's hard to explain. But basically you dive down and you lift up these flat rocks and you drag your hand under the bottom edge and you cup the catfish the the mad toms in your hand and you pull them up and put them in live bait buckets and then you turn around and use the mad toms and you go hit the real deep holes in the riffles on the river when it's low and you smoke the biggest smallmouth you've ever seen that's so, badass we're gonna yeah get i didn't even know you talked about it all the time about the mad toms the mad toms and i'm like i'm thinking it's a bug i, I didn't know what a mad tom was <laughs> so i'm kind of glad that yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna get some video of it. We're gonna take the GoPro, get some underwater stuff, and uh, take the whole snorkel kit and do the whole deal. And then, uh, so we're gonna Mad Tom on Saturday, and then we're gonna fish with the Mad Toms Sunday morning on a dawn patrol. Hell yeah! So that's bad. They always man. they turn out to be pretty wild trips. That's cool. And then the big smallies, dude. Nothing better than that. So is the oh, water yeah. a little bit lower? You guys got rain coming. I see we it, got some rain coming. We got a big storms moving in. And we, we actually, while we were recording this, we got about a ten minute shower, and that's the most rain we've had in about three weeks. Really? It is dry, desolate. I mean, you would think it's almost August the way the weather is right now. It's insane. I mean, we've been 96, 97 degrees almost every day, 90% humidity, which for the ground sucks, for the foraging it sucks, but for the river it's incredible because we got 80 plus degree water that in our favorite spots is shin to maybe waist high and it's crystal clear. That's the greatest time for this. Oh, it makes some of the best fishing. And that's the thing is with this particular setup we're going to run this weekend, you know, this is when we pull out the three and four pound smallies. I mean, it, it's nuts. Speaking of three and four pound largemouth bass, the other day we went um, uh, sea bass fishing. 
Because so they they go and they spawn in the western part of the sound. Gotcha. And then they move out the sound and they start to dissipate throughout. Well, sea bass is like the flaming young. Um, striped bass is like the sirloin. Everyone likes the the the, the striped bass, but sea bass is the flaming young. Well, that's Michelle's favorite fish to fish for. Gotcha. And we got to go out the other day with her and her girlfriend. Let me tell you something. That girl put an ass whooping on me. <laughs> I'm not I surprised. Believe it, dude. <laughs> five, two fish over five pounds. Giant Jeez. humpbacks. They got these big knots on their foreheads. They call them sea biscuits, but they got these big knots. The big males, and they're like blue and iridescent green. And yeah, fucking pissed me off. <laughs> Nailed them. I'm like, mother frigger. Oh, that's but, great. Yeah, and the bigger the bigger striped bass have started to show up, and it's just been. It sounds like you know, north to south, that the fishing's just been insane. Yeah, it's. I think it's getting hot across the board. Speaking of hot, we need to freaking pin down a date. I need I to get my ass up there. Yeah, you do, man. Because uh, July is July, August is the time of the year. That's yeah, three, four weeks. Um, how how about the bears, man? Have you seen or heard or? Believe it or not, the bear activity has been significantly slow this year. I don't know what it is. I I don't know if it's the early onset of heat or what. And granted, I haven't been running my cameras down in the trees. I usually don't put them in until about September. Mm -hmm. But on our cherry trees where they're usually out here massacring them every night, I haven't pulled them in, well, since the shoot. So I can't really say, but we haven't had any daylight encounters of anything which is really unusual so i'm waiting to see pictures of of the color phase well that's why i've been letting that camera just sit i know why we were recording we had uh two small bucks sitting out in front of the camera oh that's awesome so i'm hoping that the same things happen with the bear over the past few days and we'll be able Mm -hmm. to finally nail that down and get some uh some good picture of it for sure i definitely want to see that and we'll get some dates all set up so i can tell my boss that i'm not gonna be at work and all that good jazz oh come on just flat out say seth i'm going bear hunting he's gonna go okay oh he already knows (laughs) exactly (laughs) we got that the sick of hunt we got all kinds of good hunts so i'm glad now that we got the new job we can go and do that that's why i've been like incognito man been just kind of fishing and hunting and fishing and hunting uh hunting for fish and yes just kind of worrying about that stuff and working and I just spent nuts. Actually, I was with Ghost last night. We went out fishing for a little bit. Weather kind of turned for the worse and kind of got stuck up. And Dude, every time so, you two go out, that happens. What yeah, is well, with we that? we almost died a million and one times together. And yeah, it was yeah. good. So fishing was horrible because we couldn't get to where we wanted to go. We had our mindset and going black sea bass fishing and it was just crap. So whatever. <laughs> that's what funny. That's great, but that's funny. <laughs> yeah. So... What do you think, man? Should we uh, thank thank the people above us? Uh, well, yeah, I think we ought to kick out and say hi to the partners, give them a little and then love. Then we can get publicly challenged. Well, yeah, definitely. Well, before we do that, oh. we've got. Hold on, let me crank it up. We've got today's news for the crew. everyone mike here with some news for your crews i'm gonna keep this one short because i'm on vacation and there's beer in the cooler so let's kick this off in new jersey where a stopgap budget uh, has been approved that seemingly 
has cleared a path toward privatization of state parks. The new law says that by September 1st, the Department of Environmental Protection shall solicit proposals for reducing maintenance and capital investment backlog and environmental remediation at state parks from private and nonprofit groups in order to facilitate uh, enhanced cultural, recreational, and local economic opportunities for New Jersey residents through appropriate means, including leaseholds. Uh, environmental groups are saying that uh, these are red flags into commercial intrusions into lands that are supposed to be protected uh, in the public trust and that um, hidden in the budget uh, is a real attack on public lands and parks. Uh, we'll have to wait and see uh, what the solicitation process brings to the public lands this fall. Uh, so hopefully some more to come on that. Uh, now off to Ontario, Canada, where according to the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources, lake trout have been found spawning again on a tributary to Lake Superior after uh, they seemingly disappeared for decades. Uh, the tributary is the Namouche River, uh, also known as the Dog River. Um, and most lake trout tend to spawn in the lake, but historically there were populations spawning in uh, various tributaries to Lake Superior. Uh, that was until overfishing and the invasive sea lamprey uh, led to a collapse of the lake trout population in Lake Superior in the 50s. The Ontario government uh, stocked the mouth of the Moose River um, with stock descended from the spawning populations between the 50s and 70s, but until recently, uh, there was no hard evidence that spawning was occurring in this river. Uh, researchers studied the area in the fall season of 2012 to 2016 and found that uh, fish spawning from late September through October. Uh, the fish seemed to prefer the downstream edges of pools, particularly uh, in areas where the slope and depth change rapidly, um, where conditions are similar to those that you'd find in the lake uh, where they'd be spawning. The work being done could help locate and restore other remnant river spawning lake trout populations. Uh, there is interest in looking at the Montreal River next uh, to see if lake trout are still using it to spawn and using the information about suitable habitat to res restore other uh, historically used rivers uh, and tributaries to Lake Superior. So. Anyone out there love fishing and making extra cash doing it? Well, Colorado seems to play, be the place to do it. Uh, Colorado Parks and Wildlife is now offering a reward for catching pike in two Colorado reservoirs this summer. Uh, this has been an ongoing initiative. It's a $20 reward. Uh, being paid for every pike brought to the Heaney Marina on Green Mountain Reservoir and at Wolford Campground and Marina on Wolford Mountain Reservoir. Uh, the pike can be harmful to the trout fisheries and CPW is concerned that if the pike uh, reach critical habitats along the Colorado River that they would prey on state endangered native fishes. Uh, those would include the Colorado pike minnow, the humpback chub, the razorback sucker, and the bone tail. Uh, CPW will be keeping the heads of all pike turned in uh, for analysis and will return the bodies to anglers who do want them. Uh, any anglers that don't want them 
uh, can turn them over and donate them uh, at the marinas for later distribution, uh, which is pretty awesome. So, um, as always, if any of you have any news that you'd like to share, um, please send them along to me through social media, uh, Mike Salter on Facebook or bearded underscore bowhunter21 on Instagram. And with that, enjoy the rest of your ride. All right. Thanks, Mike Salter. Even on your vacation, you still drop us a line. What a nice guy. And, and no slurring, no nothing. I mean, it's hard to go on vacation <laughs> and still pull the news off. I mean, that and was not impressive. Dazed, not dazed and confused. Right? <laughs> no. Big shout out. Big thanks to him for doing that, even on his time off. So, For sure. Now, well, let's uh, go ahead and lead in. I'll let you yeah. handle out the partners. Tell them hi and do your thing. Oh, let's do that. Let's, uh, let's start it off. Let's start from the guys at the bottom of the list. You know, my list. Not really the bottom of the list, but the people that get thanked. That they, were written on we're the, start. they were written on the bottom of the paper. They're not bottom of the list. That's right. That's what I meant. Uh, we'll start with DNM Custom Arrows. Gary Hall over at DNM Custom Arrows. How the Arrows. hell? Yeah, you can't even put him at the bottom of the list. Come on. No. No. <laughs> Actually, you know, you want to hear something really funny. And you know what? He's going to be pissed about this, but you know what? I don't really care. You want to hear DNM Custom Arrows? I want to. I mean, I kind of feel bad that I'm putting this on there, but I don't even care. You want to hear something funny? Lay it I'm out. Gonna play, I'm gonna play the voicemail that I got from him. Okay, I'm I'm intrigued. Hi, um, my name is Kevin Seven, and I've been watching you on your uh, YouTube channel and some of your podcasts and whatnot. And I gotta say, you are the sexiest bow hunter I've ever seen. And I just, I don't know what I have to do to get on your podcast or to get on your videos, but whatever it is, I'm willing to do it. And I mean anything, okay? I don't know what you're into, but you look like you're a little bit of a freak and you're ready for anything. And I thought, what the hell? I'm going to give him a call and see if he's up for it. You know what I mean? up for it. So, I just want to let you know, I'm a bow hunting fool. I'm somebody that's rip-roaring, ready to go in the woods, face camo, all the matching socks and underwear, thongs and dildos, and you name it. I'm the man. I, I have it all. If I'm something that you want to see out in the woods, a tunic and a bow with a big shaft, I'm the man. <laughs> that ain't the funniest shit I've heard all day. Oh, that made figured, that that made it right there. This is uh, this is what I deal with. Okay, this is my life. This is my best friend Gary. And uh, oh, everyone out there, if you like Gary and that turned John, you know where to find him. D and M Custom Arrows. Oh, so G- Gary is uh, the funniest man ever. Uh, these are these are normal voicemails. I wish I could go through the list, but I got a new phone. I'm gonna laugh about that for the next two hours. Oh, DNM Custom Arrows. What he is the man. He wants to try and embarrass me. I'm gonna embarrass him. Now I see why you wrote him bottom on the list. I love Gary, but uh, no DNM Custom Arrows. Go and check him out. DNM Custom Arrows. He does some amazing work. The glue from the fletchings must really have gotten to him. Uh, but no, Gary's the man, dude. Uh, hands down, some of the best art 
across the country. Uh, we were actually at the shoot, talking to people at the shoot, and they knew who Gary was and his Customeros. So yeah, the tried guys were all about him. So go and check him out, man. DNM Customeros, and I promise, do not give him your phone number. You will get a voicemail just like that. <laughs> Uh, also i want to thank uh, broadside camo um at broadsidecamo.com scott shear doing some really good things with the photo uh realism camo uh check him out over there at broadsidecamo.com use the promo code outdoor drive and uh save yourself some so if you buy something with him and you use the promo code you get something for free so make sure to go and check them out also wicked and twisted bowstrings Jill over at Trader Jans from Wicked and Twisted Bowstrings. Her promo code is Outdoor Drive Ten, um, and make sure to use that there. Get your custom bowstrings, BCYs, Bloodlines, you name it. She makes them 100% custom. We'll ship them all over, and you can design them right on her website, thewickedtwisted.com/bowstrings.com. Also, Wild Edge Inc. over the leader in mobile hunting. Get your perch. Get your aiders, your suaders, your ropes, your rope mins, your hats, your saddle up t-shirts, you name it, wildedgeinc.com. Uh, family owned and veteran owned, USA made. Also, last but not least, mocking Mock over at Nor'easter Game Calls. Tearing it up up there in Maine. Uh, check him out, nor'eastergamecalls.com. You can find him on Instagram, Facebook, you name it. He makes it. Uh, he makes all kinds of crazy custom things. Um, with deer season rolling around the corner here, your Evo grunt tube, stay tuned. We got some special series coming out um, for that. Uh, kind of like one one and only. So we might do a serialized number with, uh, you know, a Trev's edition and a Stevens edition. So go and check him out, nor'eastergamecalls.com. Bam. Challenging. That's it, man. That was definitely challenging. Yeah. But at least it wasn't publicly challenged. It wasn't publicly challenged. Speaking of, I hope that (laughs) Gary Gary doesn't get mad about (laughs) Come on, dude. That Uh, made the show. (laughs) It did. So. But yeah, man. Let's get publicly challenged. Stack, stack, stack. back on the phone from luke from publicly challenged how you doing man i'm good man how are you guys doing well <laughs> we're surviving really wishing <laughs> i hit the record button before we rolled into this because <laughs> no i think we're good on that i think we're good on that. we don't want to put that out there <laughs> maybe the conversation about the wenzel brothers but the other stuff we don't we don't need it out there right oh. right i'm with you there. <laughs> there's enough bs in the world <laughs> yeah yeah Man, why don't we uh, turn this key and get this thing underway, Luke? Why don't you tell everybody who you are, where you're from, and uh, and what you do? All right, I'm Luke Oswald. I live in Illinois in a small, small town, and I actually live outside of town on a little piece of property that I like to think of as my own uh, Walden's Pond. 
and uh, I like it that way. But uh, I have a podcast, and it's called Publicly Challenged. But first and foremost, I'm a husband and father, uh, wonderful wife that supports me in all of my outdoor adventures, even though sometimes I know it's very taxing and difficult on her, especially when she's at home with three kids and I'm out there gallivanting around in the woods looking for mushrooms or other wild edibles. So um, I got to first and foremost thank her. And then, uh, yeah, I, I have a podcast called Publicly Challenged, and it's my quest for knowledge to become a better hunter, angler, and forager. And most of that is done on public land. So that's what I do, and uh, that's who I am. That's awesome, man. So what what made you what made you start podcasting? Like what what kind of like was that drive for you to to get into it, man? Well, to be honest, I uh, I was really late to the technology game. I had Facebook a long time ago. I deleted it when you could actually delete it and you didn't exist on there anymore. Um, I didn't have Instagram, didn't have Snapchat. Uh, a guy I worked with got me doing Snapchat because he'd send me a bunch of stupid stuff all the time. And then uh, somebody else is like, oh, you don't have Instagram? I was like, no, my wife has that. But what am I going to do with that? <laughs> so, you know, like just thought it was like a only a woman thing or something. And then I got on there and I was like, wow, there's all this great hunting content. And right around the same time, um, I was already watching a lot of YouTube content and I'd listen to like Joe Rogan and some of those guys, but I'd do it on YouTube. And uh, then I realized that there's actual apps that have podcasts on them. So I uh, downloaded it. Uh, Stitcher, I think, was the first one, Spotify, you know, and, and uh, started listening to podcasts. And I was like, wow, this is great. There's so much content out there. But at the time, there, there wasn't a whole lot in the hunting, fishing, foraging to where it was all that kind of in there. And I was like, Man, I like these. Some of these podcasts are great. Some of them I wanted to listen to, but the the audio quality and the content just was a little bit lacking. So I was like, I can do this. And at the same time, I've always wanted to just talk to people and learn as much as I can. And I was like, man, that's a great opportunity to not only educate myself, but educate other people. So then I just started uh, really diving in and people always tell me I'm the kind of guy that just, uh, when I do something, I jump in both feet first and keep going. I'll figure it out and swim as I go. So that's what I did. And it's uh, it's been a journey. I gotta say it's been a wonderful experience and I've met some absolutely amazing people. So, so like what was your favorite part so with I, my, I guess my next question was like <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what has been like your favorite thing about it though I mean with with all three like the hunting fishing and foraging aspect it's like you're, you're continually learning something and it, hunting season has its it's lulls you know you get what you call the off season so yes there's preparation and they're still shooting your bow and things like that but when you have the foraging aspect and the fishing aspect, well, there's ice fishing, you know, there's fishing all year round too. So it's one of those things that I'm continually doing things in the outdoors and I'm constantly learning and it's just amazing. I love to learn new things. If I can go out and learn one new thing a day, I feel like I'm satisfied. So I, I can't really pinpoint anything. Obviously the foraging is something that I really had when I started the podcast, I had a very limited amount of knowledge when it comes to foraging. 
and I don't, by no means am I an expert now. I am not an expert in anything. And if you listen to my podcast, you'll probably, you'll probably uh, notice that, you know, I'm not the expert. I'm talking to the experts. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, like my dad, what really started the whole foraging thing is when I was a kid, my dad gave me, I think I was like 10 or 12, and he gave me the army field manual on survival. It's like FM 127 or something. I can't, something yep, like that. You but nailed it. it. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, so that really piqued my interest in the whole foraging thing because I did a little bit of hunting with my dad. It was mostly upland game and did a lot of fishing with him growing up. Um, I really, I, I got out of the fishing uh, kind of when I was in my teens. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I drank a lot. <laughs> and uh, at some point it actually became a little bit of a problem. And by the time I was 25 years old, I quit drinking. Um, I I really needed something at that point to fill that void and occupy my time. So that's really when I dove deep into the outdoors again. I'm 36 now, so I mean, that's 11 years sober. Um, So yeah, I mean, the outdoors have became that outlet for just my energy to flow and, you know, release some of that negativity and blow off some steam and and uh but the foraging yeah that's it's it's something that always interested me but i didn't know where to go i didn't really know anything so i just started talking to foragers and then you know they tell you okay yeah there's this book and it's a great book and it's uh the foragers harvest or incredible wild edibles and i'm like oh who's that who's that guy it's Sam Thayer. Sam Thayer has pretty much written the Bible on foraging. So if anybody has never heard of him, they need to go look him up right now, order his books on Amazon, and just start digging through them. And then get out there. Get outside and start looking at the plants and start identifying them with that book. And, I mean, there's a lot of plants that I've identified now, but I don't even eat them yet because I want to be 100% sure that I have the right plant. So it's sometimes one of those things that you need to go throughout the different growth periods in the season to see what it looks like at different stages so you can positively identify it all the way through the year. Now, you just recently found something that you had posted up actually today. Yes, so believe it or not, uh, I don't know if you guys watch the hunting public at all, but they always refer to this plant that they'd never seen before. And they found it, I don't remember if it was like near the buck nest or wherever, but they were in some like marshland area. And they found this that the deer were just browsing on it like crazy. And they called it, they didn't know what it was, and somebody reached out to them and told them, oh, that's duck potato. And they're like, man, that duck exactly. potato, that really draws them in. Well, yes. So I found some duck potato, also known as wapatato or arrow broadleaf, broad arrow leaf, or many other things. It's not arrow root, but it's similar to arrow root, which is a tuber. And you can dig up the tuber and eat it. And I think you might even be able to eat, don't quote me on this, but you might be able to eat the, the leaf and the, and the shoots actually as well. Wow, and it's but so what do they what do they taste like? I've never seen it, so I was kind of like intrigued, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna ask them about that tonight. So yeah, um, so needless to say, I just recently identified it. Positive identification, like I mentioned before, is very important. But um, yeah, it's kind of one of those things that once you find something, it's it's like buying a car, 
and you never noticed all the other cars on the road. They've been there the whole time. <laughs> but now that you have that car, you're like, oh, hey, look, there's another one. There's yep. another one. You know, you pass one on the highway and you're like, wow, everybody's got that car. Well, they had them the whole time. It was just that you got it and now you notice it. So it's kind of the same thing with foraging. Um, you end up seeing something and you positively identify it and then you take it and you eat it. Well, right now is not the time to harvest it. So I didn't harvest it. Um, you want to dig up the tuber in probably like late August, September, maybe even closer to October. At that point when it's actually almost dying off and then you take the tuber and you eat it. You could peel it like a potato and eat it. Some, I think they boil them and you can mash them, do all kinds of stuff with them. That's insane. That's like, that's like ramps for us because everybody, like they never seen it. Well, they had never found a ramp. But then, what do you mean, Trev? We got three leaf stuff all over the place with red bases. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone busts my ass about that. But the uh, when I started harvesting them a lot and kind of like making them more like publicly known for everybody that follows us, everyone was sending me pictures. They're like, "Oh my god, I step on these things every single day." But it, I like the, the the metaphor that you have with the new car thing. Like, everyone's got a gray Chevy pickup truck. Once you own a gray Chevy pickup truck, like they're everywhere. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, we, I got ramps by me, but there's not a whole lot of them. So I'm kind of mm-hmm. real cautious when I do harvest them because I don't want to damage. And some mostly I just take a couple leaves and it's not even really that much. So I've really stumbled across just a few of them. I haven't really gotten into them too heavy yet, or at least found that magical ramp patch that's been there for 50 years. Right. Yeah. See, we have a, every single hillside has them on it. They're every single creek bed. I mean, they're everywhere here. Um, and I guess we're just, I'm just thankful that they are here. But Absolutely. what? what's your favorite thing to forage? Like, I know you well, guys have a ton of morels. I want to, well, you do too. You're just maybe not looking in the right spots. Uh, um. uh, got him. Um. And, and Trev, did, Trev did find morels in CT this year. I did. I did. Yeah, it just oh, took I him mean, some time in Virginia to realize what they look like. I mean, they find them in like the high Sierras even. So I, they're across the nation, maybe with an exception of a few places. But even then, it might be there. I, it's one of those just like mycelium's there and it's growing everywhere. It just might not be the right strain or whatever. But um, I mean, I never used to think that they grew. And actually, the whole elm thing that you actually talked about on one of your episodes. Mm-hmm. That holds true, but actually, unless it's like a, a long term to where it happened like 15 or 20 years ago as far as like the Dutch elm disease or, or beetles or borer, ash borers or whatever, um, that's a good spot for at least like 10 years. The, those trees, the root mass is still there and those the mycelium's feeding off them and it's going to be fruiting. But also... I have a buddy that found morels under pine trees. And I was like, man, I don't know. I don't think they could grow there, you know? I I will vouch for him. I did find a five-inch morel out here on the farm under dead pine tree limbs. Well, I can guarantee you if there was one, there was many. I took my nephew out, um, you know, trying to just, he, he was interested in it. And I said, you know what, let's go. And I took him out and he at first couldn't see any, couldn't see any. And he goes, oh, Uncle Luke, I found one. And I go, don't move. Get down on your knees, put your head down by the ground, and just start scanning around. I said, if there's one, there's many. And that's always been a saying that's stuck with me. 
um, there was an old timer that told me that once and I was like, man, what's he talking about? But no BS, people walk over more morels picking big ones when there's 20 other ones around that they probably stepped over and never even saw because they weren't looking. They were so oh, laser absolutely. focused on just that giant mushroom. That So you, I'm just saying, Steve, you might have... Uh, oh, I know I did. I, <laughs> so last year they weren't there. And uh, mainly I said, it, they may have been there, but it was an area we typically mow. We didn't mow it this year and they started popping up. So we let it go. And next year, I hope to go out and prove that true. Well, you could probably still get an early mowing in so you're not traipsing through, like, waist-high grass. But, yeah, something to think about. <laughs> yeah. A lot of, I didn't realize it, but a lot of people do do that. Like, old um, beat-down orchards and stuff, people will actually go in there and weed whack early and then make, like, paths throughout, and then they will grow up after. So, so like, the one in the thing, early season. Yes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you no. off. No, you're good. But, yeah, one thing you have to be very careful with orchards is, like, old apple orchards and stuff like that. They used to spray them with copper arsenic was the pesticide they would use to keep the bugs off the fruit. And mushrooms, mycelium, is a great filter. And it actually absorbs up a lot of that stuff. And there's been stories and incidents of, instances of people that have gotten sick, and it wasn't because it was a morel mushroom. It was because of super high levels of arsenic and copper. Wow. So they wouldn't just even have beware. thought of that. Yeah, yeah, just beware of things like that. Um, that's I've got a friend, Abby Artemisia, and I had her on the podcast, and she also mentioned you know roadsides. Mm-hmm. It may look good but you don't know necessarily what they're spraying or doing on that roadside. Or even, you know, say a truck had something that leaked out and now it's leaching into the ground and you're going to pick whether it be, you know, a plant or a mushroom. Right, well, and that holds true down here because we have a lot of roadside asparagus. Yeah. And even so much as thinking about what they spray out for anti-snow and as rain freeze or salt things like that it's all in the soil on the roadsides you may see bundles of asparagus but you're always a little iffy absolutely absolutely and and not even that but the (laughs) even the carbon monoxide and all that stuff from just the road in, in itself you know with them being filters like you're saying sucking a lot of that stuff up well, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I, I, I just don't a thought. Forage, that's yeah. all. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't. Uh, I just don't really do that. So yeah, I try and find places that are deep and as far away from people as I can. It's crazy. And then uh, you know you're going to be in a better spot anyway, right? Same as hunting. Of course. Yeah, just over the next ridge. <laughs> and the the problem I found was the competitiveness of morels because mm-hmm. morels are a fairly easy mushroom to identify other than like a gyromitra or something like that and a lot of people they don't even pick the half free morels which are edible mushrooms but because they think it's a false morel or something because it doesn't look like a regular morel like a gray or a yellow they don't pick them so I always end up getting a bunch of half free morels and that's cool I don't mind those <laughs> but uh, I started looking towards other mushrooms because it was like man there's so much fierce competition yeah some days you hit it just right but say you get there later you got something going on and you plan on hitting it the next day and you just find a bunch of trampled over ones 
that sucks. It's like, man, what am I going to do? So then you just start looking for other mushrooms like pheasant backs or, you know, a dryad saddle or just different things like that. Is there, is there, what other mushrooms do you hunt? Uh, as many as I can find, right? Um, I've got a couple different guides. My favorite uh, is Edible Mushrooms of Illinois and surrounding states, and that's by a guy named Joe McFarland, and I can't remember his counterpart's name, but they are both people that are have uh, quite the pedigree behind their name as far as uh, different boards and chairs they hold and things like that. They're super knowledgeable when it comes to that. And uh, they did a lot of research and put together an awesome, awesome book with high quality pictures and uh, little annotations next to it along with, uh, you know, lookalikes and things like that. It's a great book. And then there's another one by Stan Tequila. Um, I actually interviewed him on my podcast and amazing guy, but he's got, it's called The Safe Seven. And that that is an awesome book. Um, And I pretty much tried to find all the mushrooms in that book, which is your oyster mushrooms, your uh, shaggy manes, stuff like that. Yep. Now, do you guys get trumpets and all that stuff too? And the chanterelles and... So... I have not actually found a trumpet. I was out the other day looking. Um, I was doing a little bit of foraging, trying to identify. That's when I took the picture of that uh, that uh, duck potato, we'll call it, um, and some other things. But yeah, I was out looking, but I haven't I haven't actually found any yet. I found very few oyster mushrooms so far. Mostly morels, hen of the woods, dryad saddle, shaggy mane stuff like that I actually this is the stupidest thing I've ever done so I have a new rule of thumb um I don't pass up a mushroom if it other than if I know what it is but if I find something and I think I know what it is but I'm not 100% sure I'm gonna pick it because I can take it home and that way I can do a spore print I can identify it do all that kind of stuff and I passed up a, uh, a lion's mane mushroom and I still regret that to this day oh. and it was big I'm talking like size of my head I looked at it I'm like man white hairs uh, shorter white hairs I, man that looks super familiar what is that and I was like man I just don't know so I passed it up and it's one of the day, best I regret ones. <laughs> yeah so so to this day i regret it right but now i know i 100 percent know now for a fact that that was one and i've got the general area down and uh i've Hopefully talked to a few people up. yeah i've talked to a few people in quite a few years it'll be there maybe not in the same exact spot but if there's enough uh dead mass there it'll, it'll be there so wow i plan on yeah, getting back to that and, and that's one of the important things, like, for people to know, too, is that you can take a lot of them home as long as you don't ingest them. So, Absolutely. like, you can study them. And you had you had said something about uh, a port, uh, spore print. Um, why don't you explain kind of, like, what that is? Because a lot of people don't know. Well, basically, there's a lot of information in databases out there and books and all kinds of information that will tell you what mushroom has 
what color spore print. So then you can take that mushroom. Sometimes they say to put like put it on a white sheet of paper or a black sheet of paper, depending on what type of spore print it's going to do. And then you can sometimes you put a couple drops of water on top and you put a glass over it. And what will happen is that mushroom will actually release the spores from its gill and it will leave a print like you took an ink stamp and stamp that piece of paper and you'll be able to identify it that way. And that's just one extra way or method of positive identification like we talked about earlier for a mushroom. Absolutely. And then that's kind of important because like if you're on the fence or if there's a lot of lookalikes, I mean the spore print is definitely going to tell exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah. That's like I've just started kind of diving into the world of bolites. But there's so many bolites that's like, okay, is this a chestnut? Is this this? Is this whatever? And there's a rule of thumb, but it doesn't always apply if it, it bruises blue when you break it open that it's probably, it's not edible. Well, there's a few of them that I've just recently learned that there is an exception to, and now I'm wondering, oh man, did I have one that I could have eaten? So, you know, it's just one of those things that you want to be sure of, take it, identify it, and that spore print's just one extra step. Yeah, it's it's crazy too, because like, so like uh, honey mushrooms or deer mushrooms, um, yep. we have a, a, f- a friend of a friend here in Connecticut that, um, she was a forger for years, um, older Polish lady, and she that's what they make, mushroom soup and whatever. But so anyway, she went and got some what she thought was honey mushrooms, and they weren't honey mushrooms. Uh, it was actually a lookalike, and it actually she actually ended up dying from it, um, because it just like shut down her entire immune system um, in less than 24 hours, and actually ended up killing her. Um, and she thought that she knew and she had been forging for 10, 15, 20 years. Um, so it's kind of, it's, 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 it, those, they definitely, some mushrooms definitely scare me. Like if you don't have a positive identification or if you don't think about it, you want to make sure to do a spore print just to make sure like, could you imagine like eating the wrong mushroom? That well, would not in, be into time. the wild, right? <laughs> I mean, <Yeah. laughs> the kid had the book. I mean, that kid was out there anyway, right? He, he probably yeah. should have. He obviously had no woodsmanship skills prior to. I mean, there's a lot that went into that other than in his mental state. And he could have left, but he chose to stay and then, you know, the whole thing. But yeah, I mean, he ended up eating the wrong plant. And that's what ended up killing him. Um, that's nuts. And, and you hear it. You hear that a lot. Uh, a lot of times it's people that, you know, this is the way we did it in the old country. You know, there's that rich heritage of foraging, you know, in, in a bunch of different countries. Well, over there, that what that mushroom looks like or that mushroom is edible. Well, there's a variant over of it over here, and it's not the same. It looks the same, but it's not the same. And, yeah, a lot of people end up getting sick doing stuff like that. Absolutely. I mean, look at it like, I mean, even with on the fish aspect of it. So like, like they're like, say, walleyes, for example, Xanders, um, they're the same species, but they, they are the same. I guess, how would you say it? Like, they're the same 
the same fish but different species i guess i don't know you know what i'm saying they're walleyes right like same genetics and, just yeah. different totally different so it's the same See, with no, mushrooms i don't even here. know what a xander is a xander <laughs> so, is a walleye so yeah. xander is just a different they get bigger over there they have a little bit different colors they're like the cousin of the walleye um they're their perch get three times the size that ours do they have another name for them obviously they're like our yellow perch um there's uh, there's a million and one different ones that are like the same but different names or different subspecies of it's pretty crazy yeah definitely i'm just glad deer are easy to identify (laughs) that's all i'm saying it's aging them on the hoof when you're staring at bone on their head that's hard right right you know it's got its challenges but at least i go that's a deer or that's a bear (laughs) because the heart wants it to be a lot older than what it is sometimes hey ground shrinkage is real yeah yeah without a doubt it's better to have ground growth though oh for sure (laughs) so so luke did you did you grow up in a hunting outdoor family or did you is it something that you took on a little bit older in life or um i think we talked about it a little bit earlier but um mostly upland game with my dad uh, as far as hunting went um a lot of fishing with him and then i i I think i was like 15 and my dad bought me a bow it was like an old hand-me-down bow and kind of got it fitted to me the best we could and uh, my buddy and I just shot and shot and shot all summer and he had a big you know the old hay bale targets in his backyard and uh, it continued on into winter and my parents were uh, building a house that was like an empty basement that we'd go with was heated and we'd shoot down there and I mean it got to the point where my dad just started yelling at us that we had to stop because we we're literally breaking arrows with these old crap bows right so we're like hey man let's go deer hunting okay and I was fortunate enough to where it was a subdivision that my parents built in but it was undeveloped so there was 83 acres that I had just pretty much carte blanche do anything I want and uh, I I really didn't realize how good I had it and it was just I mean prime whitetails I'm seriously talking this is no BS you were tripping over 150s um, and thing was though is I didn't know what the heck I was doing um, first morning I had buddy's dad that that knew you know he was a big-time deer hunter and I mean he's killed a lot of a lot of big deer and um, we used to call him Ronnie the deer slayer <laughs> but uh, and it was yeah d-e-e-r so when he'd sign a note it'd be like you know to the wife or whatever he went hunting you know he'd sign ronnie the deer slayer but um <laughs> uh, he set up some stands for us on some great trails close to bedding you know but i had no idea i didn't know anything um i never played the wind didn't even know about wind didn't even know that a whitetail you know i didn't i didn't know my quarry but I still tried to get out there. And the first morning, I had a 10-pointer right in front of me. I'm guessing back then there wasn't rangefinders. He was probably 25 yards. And uh, I aimed with my second pin, so I went right over his back, and he took off. Never saw him again. Um, And just a lot of similar situations like that. And then it just kind of developed and I started killing deer and I really, I didn't care about size. I I was what you would call a meat hunter and the hunt was my experience, my trophy. Um, I've kind of changed that aspect a little bit. 
I'm not necessarily chasing bone, but I'm going after more mature deer now. Um, more so as like a sustainability and a ethical standpoint, right? I mean, why kill all the young deer when you can kill an older one that's already bred and then, you know, get something cool to hang on your wall too and some steaks. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, but I love all aspects of hunting. I try and hunt everything as much time as my wife will let me get away. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of my hunting in a nutshell. So so what kind of like changed you from going from that meat hunter to, to being more of a mature trophy hunter? Well, to be perfectly honest, I didn't need to fill the freezer as bad as I mm-hmm. did before. So uh, I've got a buddy that raises cattle and I purchase a half off of him every year. So my freezer's full, so mm-hmm. I might as well chase after uh more mature deer which is which is awesome i think it's great man like just still living off the land and everything i I just ask i try to ask everybody that you know because like (laughs) yeah it i'll say that it changed um also i started hunting public land up until a few years ago i didn't hunt public land and okay that was a huge learning curve so now not only was i competing against other hunters and myself but then now I decided that I wanted to go after bigger deer. So yeah, definitely, it's it's uh, changed the game and made it a lot harder. But uh, I'm I'm getting there. Don't get me wrong. I still I'll still take a, a doe. Of course. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Big barren backstrap. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, let's don't get me wrong. I wouldn't say I'm not a meat hunter because right. I'll still take I'll still take a deer or two here. Of course. So like when you went to the public land thing, I mean like what what were kind of like some of like the the hard times that you went through learning how to public land hunt? Well, let's start off with you don't wait. It's public land. If you find a deer that's on public land that you want to hunt that's a mature deer, you better hunt them. Because I hung a camera got one stolen, found another spot, found an awesome buck bed right off the parking lot, about 200 yards down off the parking lot and maybe 60 yards from the road. But he was perfect. I mean, he had a cornfield and he had beans to browse on all day long and a little stream running through there that he could go and get a drink and go right back to his bed. It was like the perfect scenario, right? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna get in there. I'm gonna wait till it's a little bit cooler. And then I'm gonna go in and I'm gonna go get him. That's the stupidest thing I could have done <laughs> because I should have got in there opening day, taking care of business and gotten it done. And I didn't. Right. And by that time, about 15 other hunters had gone through there. Ugh. And I went and talked to one guy. I actually pulled in. I was like, oh, maybe I'll still try and hunt it. you know. And I did. I hunted it about two times. I was like, I haven't seen anything, anything at all. I mean, there's not even any fresh sign in here anymore. And I was like, man, something's going on. Well, I ended up going and sitting in the parking lot and, and another guy came out from a stand the other direction and he was talking to me and he's like, yeah, my buddy saw one over that way and he shot him and he shot right over his back and then he shot again at him and he missed him, went right under him, he, he jumped the string. And I'm thinking, your buddy had a chance to shoot at that deer twice, you know? And it's one of those things and I'm like, he's gone he's found another bed somewhere else and he's out and and i even tried putting up a camera and everything to try and see if i could i could come up with anything and i couldn't he he was gone 
So there's a prime example right there. If you got a deer and it's on public ground, get out and hunt it. That's that's the best advice I could tell anybody else, and that's Don't what I wait. learned. Hundred <laughs> percent. Don't wait. Um, some of the other things that I've learned is get away from the pressure. Sometimes you can't do that. Sometimes you got to lower your standards. Uh, somebody told me that, and that really stuck with me. Um, I mean, he's like, man, sometimes you just got to think about it and go. Maybe that property is just not going to produce the same deer that in your head you think you're going to get. So if you keep holding out, you're not going to get anything there. So that that's definitely another piece of advice I could give that I learned. Um, definitely, you know, I mean, if you've got a piece of property and say, say it's 45 minutes south of the city and that's the closest piece of property from the city of Chicago that hunters can go to, well, that right there tells you something there's going to be a lot of people on that property and either a they're shooting everything they see or b they're scaring them out of there so now you got to evaluate well is it even worth me hunting so i've kind of changed my strategy as far as that goes and i started thinking about it and i'm like you know what if these people are coming down here and they're flooding this property and they're willing to drive 45 minutes or an hour just because i have public land all around me that's you know 10 minutes 20 minutes half hour maybe i should drive 45 minutes to an hour and that's opened up a lot of doors for me by choosing to travel just a little bit further and find that piece of property that is a way better piece of property with less pressure. Just get out of the realm. So, yeah. so what are you, what are you doing now? Like preseason. So, like, what are you doing now to prep for the season? Like, what do you do on public land? Well, so this COVID thing has kind of changed everything as far as that goes because. A lot of our public lands were completely closed, but oh, luckily right. I got in there. Yeah, they were completely closed. The state just shut it down. I mean, I didn't even get to hunt my turkey season. That's something we could talk about if you wanted to, because no, so I am angry actually, about that. But <laughs> we we can definitely deviate to that because <laughs> yeah. So we we actually we went to Illinois because we went to the working class bow hunter shoot, and we had gotten into town early, and we decided to go and check out some public land. Uh, some of the local guys or whatever we had gotten in a day early we went and got breakfast and whatnot and then we're like they're like oh yeah go check out this public land it's over there in big buck country so we get over there and there's just signs everywhere covid uh due to the covid pandemic you uh no access onto this uh public land and we're like what who the hell does that yeah. Like, yeah. What's better we than were all being scratching our heads. <laughs> social so distancing. I, <laughs> this is like social distancing to its max. Like, what? Absolutely. I agree uh. with you 100% on that. And so I even emailed the state, didn't hear anything, called, left a voicemail, told them that I emailed several, several times. And then finally, I got an email back saying, hey, I got a message, blah, blah, blah. Because everybody was working from home, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um you know, unless you work at a grocery store or whatever, then then you're essential, right? Because all those people working at home wanted to go and get something to eat. Hopefully, I didn't offend anybody that was working at home. But no, I mean, you're good. The, the state just—I mean—the way they handled things was absolutely crazy. I, like Wisconsin, I think the way they did it is all their trails, everything was open, but they closed their bathrooms and everything. Big deal. How many right. people do you know that uh, actually use the public bathroom? right off the trailhead anyway so i mean that's what you're trees out are there, for you're, yeah you're not going to go back five miles to go use the bathroom but um so i mean at least they handled it a little bit differently and and i got an email back from the state and then i responded again to the email because it gave me the most canned response 
copied and pasted from the Illinois Department of Natural Resources website that they could possibly give me. And I pretty much told them that their answer was BS and I wanted to know whether or not I was going to get to hunt my turkey tag or whether or not they were going to give me a refund. And the response I got was, the state of Illinois doesn't have the capacity nor do they have the ability to issue refunds at this time. However, we will look into it later. And I still have yet to hear back from them. Wow. What? That's uh, sad. (laughs) That's impressively sad. So here's here's the real kicker about it. I don't know how it works for you guys, but our public lands are site specific. So you have to apply, get into a lottery for that tag if you want to hunt there. And then maybe you get it, maybe you don't. You put in three choices. What if you don't draw one of them? So now, do I even get to hunt that next year with the same tag? And then how does that work for the lottery? There's so many answers that are not answered yet, and it's starting to really make me angry. But it's, it's a crappy way of doing things. I'm getting angry for you, man. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, out here, it's get your license and it's fair game. Yeah, it's yeah. the same here. We, we so. buy our license. They give us two public land tags and three uh, private land tags. Well, let's yeah, face it, in nice. Connecticut, you can kill deer wherever you see them, but... Yeah. <laughs> Different world. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that didn't really sit too well with me, but... So, uh, so you didn't get the opportunity? You, you, couldn't, you couldn't turkey hunt this season? No. So, I've never killed a spring turkey. I've always had an extra tag in my pocket during archery season for deer. Mm-hmm. And happen to take two of them that way, but that's—I mean, I've never, never spring turkey hunted. I was looking forward to it. I did some preseason scouting. Um, I talked to a guy named Shane Simpson. Got some calling tips. Uh, I don't know. I'm guessing you guys probably know who Shane is because dude's amazing as far as calling goes. But um, talked to him. Did some scouting. Did some calling. Called in two amazing gobblers pre-season and was like okay i know where i'm gonna hunt i know where they're coming down off the roost i was ready to kill a dirt dragon beard and i didn't have that opportunity so yeah i'm, I'm a little sorry upset. brother <laughs> i'm feeling some yeah. pain for you man definitely um but if you want to go back we could talk about the what do i do yeah for sure man definitely definitely that was <laughs> What would you do in What would you do in a normal year exactly? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it kind of differentiates because I've I've kind of just started to find a few places that I like, um, but I think that's even going to change again. So once I get a big deer off this property, I'm probably going to write it off and then go to a few other parcels because there's so much of it out there. Why stick to the same piece? That's why I've never bought a piece of hunting property. Because then you're putting all this time and effort and work into it just to go hunt the same place every year. Why not see Mm -hmm. something new? You never know what you're going to see. So with that being said, though, um, I tried to learn a piece of property, hunted a couple times, then didn't go back a whole lot. Um, I've got one now that I'm not going to see where or what it is, but a giant deer was killed there um, during shotgun season kind of made me a little sad my buddy texted me and said hey you remember that little island uh you were hunting i'm like yeah he goes yeah hate to tell you this but uh that deer was a lot bigger than you thought a lot bigger oh, than man. you thought. Uh, and i go what do you mean and he goes well 
Yeah, there was a guy that had some hip waders on, and he waited over there, and waders filled up, and he climbed up out the other side and was about to turn around and go home, and up jumped Buck and out of his bed, and he shot it. And I'm like, oh, man, that's crazy. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't want to give away too many details because somebody listening might actually know that, wow. so I'm not going to go into that too much. But, yeah, there's some great genetics there. There's uh, definitely some great browse for them along with some egg and some other things so it's like a perfect spot and i've really really put in the work early season late deer season into early season as far as like springtime um and and got them patterned so um yeah Did I'm you have another big cap- buck in there yeah, there's there's a few yeah. um you know I, I don't have a, like a target buck picked out mm-hmm. but i'm gonna get back in there as soon as i can the whole COVID thing kind of changed it up to where I'm, you know, early season pattern. I haven't got that figured out yet, but I mean, our season doesn't open up until October. So with with that, like where it opens up, you're really getting into where they're starting to transition pre-rut anyway. So um, I'm trying to keep focus and keep tabs on all of the giant scrapes. Uh, you know, you want the community scrapes, stuff like that. Um, and then I just found some great bedding areas that I'm pretty sure they're gonna be into. So kind of just work in that angle and uh hoping to really capitalize on that and then i'm going to move on to another piece and uh i started doing an e-scouting thing we were talking about a little bit earlier yeah. um with mark Livesey and his e-scouting and the course is designed for elk but the more i'm going through the course i'm not even finished with it yet but i feel stupid as far as like all my western hunting that i've done which is only one trip but like just any of that I feel stupid not going through and doing these different things and now that I know it it's like man this is a game changer but it, I'm starting to apply the e-scouting and the techniques and stuff that he uses and it really applies to just about any animal as long as you know that animal and know what they're going to be into as far as feed and all that kind of stuff and you know where they most of the time put their beds it's really I think it's going to be advantageous for me to start doing it that way too. I was gonna ask, does his does his e e scouting program work for other animals? Yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, so it's geared towards elk. So he's gonna talk about you know what kind of features to look for for elk. You know, so it's gonna be different. You're gonna look for like a little knob or or something like that for a whitetail. You know, but. Um, to where the wind's going to swirl and you can find something. You know what I mean? As far as like that, I mean, I guess it depends on whether or not you're going to try and go hill country or, you know, swamps or whatever. But, um, yeah, it, definitely the, the the features and so, like, the way he uses those tools, once you figure out, like, oh, my gosh, I can take Google Earth and Google Earth is probably one of the best ones to use and then you go on your Onyx and look at it. And then you go back to your Google Earth. And then, so the other thing you gotta think about is like, so your annual rainfall and stuff like that, right? So try and find similar records of a different year because you're not gonna be able to see it in October when you're looking at it in say, you know, February. But if you find a year that's similar, you can take the slider and slide the slider back on Google Earth and look at what that terrain actually looks like with that rainfall. What kind of browses, you know, how green is it? All those things. Wow, that's 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 very important. So, so what are the <laughs> things that like you look for when you're e scouting on public land? Like, what do you? Well, so obviously, I want to try and find where they can get close to feed. The most important thing I think is 
for me is trying to just figure out and the way Mark defines it is the best way is zones of pressure, right? So how many guys are going to walk two miles or three miles deep on public land through some thick brush? Not too many. You know, I mean, how many guys are going to go 100 yards off the parking lot and find a deer trail and sit right on top of it? 85%. Yeah. So the, the biggest thing is finding, obviously you want to find food. But before you do that, I am trying, and by no means am I an expert, by no means am I a deer slayer. I'm not. I am not <laughs> the hunting beast or anybody like that. I I haven't even killed a big buck on public ground yet. So um, with that being said, I want everybody to know that first. But identify the zones of pressure. Once you identify those zones of pressure, kind of rule that out and then start finding places where you're going to find feed and then where you're going to find cover, good cover for bedding areas and transitions. So you start looking at that and then you start dissecting the train and you're like, well, man, this has got all three of those features within this one grid that you're looking at on the map. And it's like, okay, let's zoom in a little bit. And then you might see something. So that that's how I do it now, now that I've started going through the course, but that's all within this year. Before that, I just look at my phone on Onyx and go, hmm, yeah, that kind of looks good. Let's, uh, let's head over that way, right? You know, um, so things have definitely changed. Some, I think, I think there's a lot of people out there that, so there's like two different groups of people, right? The guys that are like us that look at it and go, oh yeah, this is a good spot. Let's go there. And then there's the other ones that kind of, they, they, they dissect it like Mark and like, I mean, I can name off a million of them that like know every little terrain feature and they go there and there's deer sign. I mean, I just don't, I don't get how they get that, like in their mind, like how they get to, to be like, okay, this looks like this saddle here or, or this terrain change here. And then they go there and there's just loaded with deer sign and they kill a big buck in there. Like, I'm like, I just don't get how they do that. So if you look at a guy like, for instance, Tony Peterson, that dude kills big deer on public dirt every year. But he's constant. He works from home. He's a writer, podcaster. Pretty much any content that's out there these days, he's he's creating. But he's on the computer a lot. And I asked him. I said, "Dude, how you know how much do you find yourself drifting away from work and just clicking on Onyx and looking at it?" He goes, "Oh, constantly." He goes, "We'll be sitting watching a movie with my kids or something." <laughs> he goes, "I'll pull out the iPad and you know watch the movie, but be looking at maps." You know, he's like, "It's just it gets addicting." But guys like that, they're not going to just go in completely blind and be like, "Oh yeah, here's some public ground. I'm going to apply for a tag in Kansas and see if I get it." They're going there, looking at it, and then going, hmm, maybe I'll apply for a turkey tag. Then I can put boots on the ground and verify. I mean, that's awesome. That's mm-hmm. that's a great way to do it. But he already knows the terrain before he even gets there because he's looking at it and studying it and looking for those features. Like, I'm just starting to kind of learn topographic lines. You know what I mean? Like, I am, like I said again, I'm no expert, but this is just stuff I'm learning. And it's like, man, this is crazy. And it... If, if you dedicate the time to do it on a computer screen where you can actually see it versus your phone, it's going to make a difference. I mean, it's it's definitely opened up some doors for me and just kind of changed my whole hunting world the way I'm looking at things. Now, is that what you did for your Western hunt also? No. No, I didn't. 
No, not at all. Uh, basically, it was uh, looking at Onyx on my phone, trying to study it that way, going on Go Hunt, trying to figure out draw odds, then going, you know what? Hell with it. Let's just go buy an over-the-counter Colorado tag. <laughs> <laughs> then, then it was, okay, uh, let's pick a spot. Okay, what's kind of closer to where, you know, we're both driving the same distance? And then uh, went hunting with my cousin out there. And... Uh, yeah, we looked a little bit, but we didn't even know what the heck we were looking at. I mean, to be perfectly honest, I had no idea. I I didn't even know that elk prefer the shade and cold, and they want the north slopes. I had no idea. You know, it's just things like that. I didn't know what a deer, or, you know, I mean, I knew what white-tailed deer ate. I didn't know what the heck they ate in Colorado. I didn't know that elk were grazers and not browsers. I didn't know enough. I watched a few uh, Randy Newberg videos and thought, well, Randy can do it. Maybe all of us can. And he tells you that. But what he doesn't tell you is, hey, folks, study your animal. Know your quarry before you go after it. I mean, he kind of does, and he breaks it down to, like, the basics. But, you know, um, the e-scouting, you can't cover e-scouting in, like, five-minute little videos. I mean, that's not even scratching the surface, right? Right. So that's why I thought it was amazing. I had Mark on the show, interviewed him, and it was probably the most eye-opening thing ever was was the whole uh, Treeline Academy as far as that goes. But no, I did not do any e-scouting. We, we, we looked a little bit. We ended up finding out that one of my my cousin's uh, dad was friends with the guy that lives out there and go, yeah, I've killed a few elk out on public dirt. Oh, yeah, you're going to southern Colorado? Yeah, here's some of the spots I went. And we're like, okay, yeah, we'll go there. So <laughs> we went there. Totally different season. I think the guy was like first rifle season, maybe even archery season, where their third rifle season. You know, just didn't know what the hell we were doing. Super discouraging, right? We had zero hunt plan. We had no idea what we were doing. And so the whole time we're just chasing her tail every morning. We're looking at her phone, trying to figure out something. I didn't even pre-download maps. I I'd hate to admit this, but I didn't even pre-download the maps on my phone because I figured, yeah, whatever. We'll I got a GPS, yeah. but no, no service. You're in the freaking mountains, dude. You know, so <laughs> I'll admit it. I was stupid. I made that's a awesome ton of though. mistakes, but, but, but that's I learned a lot, right? And that's why I'm interviewing the people I'm interviewing on my podcast. I didn't have the podcast then. This was just something I wanted to, you know, I did afterwards. And, and mm -hmm. that was actually a driver for it. And I was like, man, I see all these dudes, you know, they're killing big bulls. What, what are they doing? How do you how do you be successful and get on an elk every year? Well, I still haven't figured that out, but I'm working on it. You know, and I think that's the biggest thing is uh, the e scouting, the, the the other stuff. But you know what? The physical aspect, man, that's a killer too. If you don't condition yourself, the mountains will kill you. Yeah, how bad is it? Like, how is it? Like, how would you coming from the Midwest where it's flat? There might be a, a little bump in the road, but going out to the west i'm 397 feet in elevation where i'm at Jeez. when i went out to actually when i when i went out to colorado it wasn't terrible i was out there started out at 8,000 feet and kind of stayed there for about a day and then i mean it, i'm not going to say okay it was terrible but it was manageable and i didn't get altitude sickness the altitude was kicking my butt for about the first two and a half days and then I acclimated I was good uh, but I also did a lot of running I did a ton of rucking I put weight in a pack 
and I'd take the kids every Saturday morning, put them in the stroller, and I'd go find the hilliest trail I could find and push them in the stroller on it. You know, just all that. Going rucking by myself and doing as many miles as I could do with a 50-pound pack, just trying to get myself ready. And that was fine, but the altitude's still going to kick your ass if you don't acclimate. You know, I mean, I don't, some people it doesn't bother, but it bothered me for about the first couple days, and then I was good. Now, just recently, I went out to, uh, to Montana, and I was out there, and I came in the night before, the next day we met up, we hit the trailhead, um, it, it was the Western, Western Hunting Summit, so we did, we did a hike in, it was like five miles with a bunch of elevation loss and gain, and uh, my, my heart was beating out of my chest the whole time, and I never caught my breath. Not, not the whole entire time. And it was, it was almost the same way on the way out. So, I mean, that time it really kicked my ass. It was worse than the other time. So I, they talk about like different supplements and stuff you could take. I tried. I actually took some stuff from Mountain Ops, and I'm going to be honest, I don't think it did anything. And, and what is it supposed to do? Like as far well, as... Uh, supposed to make it to where your blood carries more oxygen or something like okay. that. Because a lot of and, it's breathing because it's thinner air, right? Yeah, yeah. So, like, they have, like, natural anti-inflammatories in there, like a grapeseed extract and some other type of herbs. Um, and then whatever to carry carry the, the more oxygen through your blood. But I'm going to be honest, I, I do not think it works. No, you're 100% right. So I was born and raised at 9,000 feet, and nothing you can do will prepare you for going to that elevation from sea level because yeah. moving from there to sea level and then going back i instantly know the difference and i know i'm getting my ass kicked for that whole trip yeah <laughs> i couldn't even imagine dude no so here's the whole thing though if 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 give yourself enough time to get out there to acclimate if you can acclimate and just they say it's like a thousand a thousand feet a day is what you're supposed to give yourself to acclimate i think is what what the kind of rule of thumb is um but like so when i was out there at the hunting summit lampers was like lagging way behind to to kind of like stay with me make sure i didn't like go down and have a grabber or something on the trail and so he's kind of talking to me as i'm catching my breath and he was talking about a friend of his and turns out that another guy that i interviewed told me the same story i probably a mutual friend but the guy's like an avid avid crossfitter just uh i mean he hammers it all the time and never had a problem and he was down in southern colorado and he shot a bull elk and started packing it out and he made it down and started getting kind of delirious and stuff and just um and his buddy's like, man, no, you're, you're showing signs of altitude sickness. We need to get you to the hospital. He was going to go back up and take down another load of meat before, you know, before he went to the hospital. And they're like, no, we better take you. And the doctors told him if, if you would have went back up, you would have never, ever made it down. Wow. Yep. That, that's about how it goes. So and what are I some mean, of the it, signs for that? Like, oh. I think it's like uh, headache, dizziness, loss of breath, you know, um, and then I think your your organs actually shut down. Like I, I never got the altitude sickness, but the altitude just affected me to where it was like, holy crap, just the whole time your heart's beating like you've just been, you know, running the whole time, but you're not, you're literally hiking a trail 
but it's just your body can't pull in enough oxygen and your blood, your heart's pumping faster to pump that blood through to try and circulate the oxygen in, in your blood. That's how I, that's how I feel every time I go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> Take that and multiply it by 10 and then have someone yeah. choke you out as you do it. But so, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's something I'm definitely going to focus on more is, uh, like nutrition and fitness. Mm-hmm. Um, because that it definitely plays a pivotal role. I mean, it's just as far as cardiovascular respiratory, right? If you if you're, and I mean the whole COVID thing, I could make excuses if I wanted that. Oh, they shut my gym down. And stuff. Bottom line is, I just didn't do what I needed to do mm-hmm. to be in the cardiovascular shape. Then it probably would have been easier on my body. <laughs> For sure. I just, it's funny is that I think there's a lot of people throughout this whole entire thing that like they gained 25 pounds during the whole COVID thing and they weren't doing what they were supposed to and it stopped them from doing this and stopped them from doing that. Yeah, Which, I just, I, I don't want to make excuses. Bottom yeah. line is, is I didn't do what I should have done. That's right. Yeah. I guess it's just it's just more time for beer drinking and hanging out. Oh, you're sober. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm sober, but uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one, Luke. I'm with you. <laughs> it's definitely a great thing. So, man, I got one question for you, dude. We ask everybody this question is what drives you outdoors? Well, I, like I said, I mean, it's kind of my outlet, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there is no no better thing than some outdoor therapy. I think there's even some uh, pretty good research out there right now that uh scientific data if you will that that actually correlates uh mental health and uh and well-being to nature so yeah that's that's what drives me man so i'm glad i'm glad you kind of circled back on this because i was going to ask that question when you had you had said that that it was kind of your outlet at a younger age um from you know from drinking and whatnot so you could say that the outdoors has kind of saved you Yes, it's it's definitely given me uh, an easier easier outlet uh, yeah. outlook as well. You know, yeah. I think that it saves a lot of people. So when we had talked to like uh, Ryan uh, Ryan the Buddha from uh, the outdoor. Ryan off the grid. Yeah, all right, off the grid. Why can't I think right now? Um, Altitude. Yeah, is that what it is? Is The altitude. (laughs) No. Um, He was saying with a lot of the PTSD and the veterans and so on and so forth that like it honestly it does a lot for them. um, The outdoors, and I mean, even myself, man. At a, I grew up in a family that was hunting and fishing, but even then I say that it saved me because some of the friends that I grew up with um, weren't so lucky to have the outdoors and they didn't go to good places. So I, I mean, it's definitely, it's, it's good to hear that there's more stories out there of people that the outdoors has definitely um, veered them in the right direction. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that's the easiest way to weed out your crappy friends <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because uh if you've got a deer five miles back and you got to quarter it up and pack it out you're, you're gonna know where your true friends are or an elk or whatever you down that animal the ones that are there those are your real friends so. true story actually this this year um i shot my biggest buck to date and i called one person and six of my buddies showed up that's amazing so, that's so awesome. it's good to, it's that's because it wasn't an elk yeah. you know what's even better than that is when they don't steal your hunting spot and they were there to help you drag that deer out so right. that's a good friend exactly <laughs> yeah yeah that's uh, that's how you know they're your real friends man 
for sure. So, man, where where can everybody find you? Instagram, Facebook, uh, the um, podcast. I don't. I still don't really do the whole uh, Facebook thing. I haven't. I'm with like you, I brother. Said, I'm not don't <laughs> feel bad. I'm with you. Smart man. I, Smart man. I am not too tech savvy. I don't get the fact that uh, you know, because compared to Instagram, you just you can follow people, they follow you, whatever. The other one, you have to like be friends with them and create a, uh, a personal profile in order to create a page. And I, I just kind of gave up on the whole Facebook thing. Uh, so Facebook, if you ever hear this, just change that, man. Make it make it so I can yeah. make a page. <laughs> um, but uh, no, if if people want to learn more about me or listen to the podcast, they can find the podcast on publiclychallenged.com they can go to um, Stitcher, iTunes any any of your platforms that you're going to listen to a podcast you can find it on there and then as far as wanting to like uh, interface with me or something they can get in touch with me through the website publiclychallenged.com or they can uh, hit me up on Instagram and it's uh, publicly at publicly underscore challenged awesome, awesome. Well, Luke, we greatly appreciate you jumping on, bringing some of the uh, the Midwest, and in this case, a little more of the West, out here to the East Coast, because these are the things that people, when they want to go out and do the things that you're doing, need to know. And uh, I highly advise everybody listening to get on, check out his show, and learn the stuff he's learning. This is the stuff you need to know to go out and do that, and it's great information, great knowledge to have on hand. So make sure you check that out and uh, follow along. We can't thank you enough for giving us your time. I know you're busy. There's a lot going on. But uh, at the end of the day, all I can do is thank you and for everyone listening for taking the ride right here on the Outdoor Drive. (laughs) 